We're going to be in Luke 22, uh, verses 7 through 23. I'll read that text, uh, pray, and then we'll dive into the scriptures together. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, the teacher, says to you, Where is the guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it, just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table, and the disciples, the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes... As it, as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. Let's pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you that you are a good and gracious God, that you are holy and righteous. Uh, Father, we want to give you all honor and glory, for it is your due. And God, when we, are entered into, when we enter into your presence, we are reminded of our sinfulness. We are reminded that we don't often praise you as we should, God. We do not often serve one another as we should. God, too often we are greedy and selfish, desiring to have our own, own needs met rather than the needs of others. Uh, dear God, we confess our sin to you this morning, uh, the sins that we are aware of and the sins that we are unaware of. And God, we ask that you would forgive us our sins and cleanse us through all unrighteousness, through the matchless, per- perfect blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We hold on to the promise that those who come to you in confession, that you will cast their sin as far as the east is from the west, and you will hold us accountable for our sins no more. We pray that you do that in Jesus' name. And Heavenly Father, we lift up our our, our church family to you this morning. We specifically lift up uh, Miss Eunice, God. We we thank you so much for her life, uh, for how much she loves you and she loves your people. God, how she has served so faithfully in this church. God, now in our, in our hour of need, we pray that you would minister to her by the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, she has lived a long and fruitful life. And God, we, you, we know that you are the, no, the one who holds the number of our days. God, we pray now that you would be kind and gracious to Miss Eunice. God, that you would do as your will sees fit. We pray for your mercy. We pray, pray for your grace to be upon that family. And dear God, we Uh, Also, just pray for our city. Uh, We thank you so much for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that goes forth week in and week out. Uh, Dear God, we pray this morning uh, for John Chambers at Remedy Church. God, we pray that as he preaches the word of God, that that congregation would be formed to the likeness of Christ. Uh, We pray that as he announces and declares your holy word, that that congregation would love you more. And God, now we pray and we look to our own hearts. 
Father, we thank you for the privilege that you, that you give us each and every week to gather in your name for your glory. So God, I pray first that you would just humble me, that I may decrease, that you may increase, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in thy sight, my Lord, my rock, and my redeemer. God, I pray for the people whom you've given me to care for, <clears throat> the people of Park Baptist Church. God, I pray that you would soften their hearts, that they would hear your word this morning, that they would not hear a word from a man, but they would hear a word from God. Father, I pray that you would speak through me by the power of the Holy Spirit, taking your word and attend it to the people's hearts. God, convict us of sin. Remind us of your grace. Lead us to truth. <clears throat> Father, we, we, we thank you so much for your scriptures. Uh, we pray now that you would do more abundantly than we could possibly ask or imagine during this time. We pray your glory would be had, that your name would be honored. We pray that you would do this uh, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, on March 4th, uh, 1933, uh, President, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed a nation facing a deep depression. Unemployment was just under 25%. The nation was steeped in uncertainty and confusion. Uh, people were starving, literally, and they were afraid. During his campaign for president, Roosevelt uh, was known for his optimism, his fatherly tone. But his first address as the president of the United States, he was speaking to a fearful nation. He spoke to their grief and their pain. He said these words, this is a preeminently the time to speak the truth, the whole truth, frankly and boldly, nor need we shrink from honestly facing conditions in our country today. This great nation will endure as it has endured, will revive and will prosper. So first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror, which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. In every dark hour of a nation's life, a leadership of frankness and vigor has met, has met with that understanding and support of the people themselves, which is essentially to victory. I am convinced that you will again give that support to leadership in these critical days. What FDR knew that the people were afraid of their future, he wanted in his first address to bring them to trust him as their leader. During times of uncertainty and trials, it is vital for a people to trust their leader and his plan for the future. This was true for the United States during the Great Depression, and it was, it's true for us as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ during their Great Depression. This section we begin today is the beginning of what is commonly referred to as the passion of the Christ. Jesus has already told his disciples several times that he was going to suffer and die, be delivered over to the Gentiles and be crucified. And at the beginning of his betrayal and coming death, Jesus wants to reassure his disciples to trust him and to trust his sovereign plan for their future. Uh, if you want to follow along in the bulletin provided for us, you can just flip, flip around the back. The first truth, only two today, trust in God's sovereign plan. Trust in God's sovereign plan. Luke sets the scene uh, showing how Jesus was a faithful Jew, even to the end, 
in keeping the Passover. Look again at Luke 22, verse 7. It says, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Now, if you were a Jew, your ears, your sensors would have been up in the first century. You would have known deeply how important the Passover was. So we go on, and Jesus shows who's in charge. Verse 8. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you an upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. So Jesus' life is close to an end. He knows that. His disciples know that. He was going to be arrested, tried, and crucified. And although he, he knew the end was coming, he still made plans to celebrate the Passover as a pious pilgrim in the capital city. You know, we could see Jesus taking control here, but what we don't know is if Jesus prearranged this meeting at this room or by his foreknowledge determined that it was, it was going to happen. Regardless of how Jesus knew of the man in the room, it was clear that Jesus was in charge. Jesus was the leader. He took initiative to celebrate the Passover. You know, I think these details of the Passion narrative show how Jesus was not a rebel you know, fighting against the establishment, but a faithful, pious Jew who keeps the law. Now, we've been out of Luke for several mo- months now, but let's, let's think back to the beginning of Luke's gospel. Who is he writing to? If you just want to turn back to Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Remember the context of why Luke is writing this. In verse 1 it says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to, comp- to compile a narrative of things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Luke begins his gospel by, by addressing Theophilus, probably a Roman uh, official, detailing Jesus' life. All throughout Luke's gospel, you see detail after detail explaining the, the sovereign plan of God in salvation. The passion is not a random event, but has been set before the foundation of the world. Even I said before that verse 7 should remind him of the great uh, deliverance in the Old Testament Verse 7, it said, Then came the day of unleavened bread, and which, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. The Passover was the celebration of God's deliverance from Egypt. Israel was in bondage for 400 years. Their cries were heard by the Lord, and God raised up Moses to deliver his people. So Moses came to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. Pharaoh wouldn't, so he sent plague after plague after plague. Nine plagues, and Pharaoh hardened his heart, or the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And finally, God promised the tenth plague, which you read, which Joel read from Exodus chapter 12, that God would told the Israelites to sacrifice a lamb without blemish, 
and spread the blood on the doorpost of the house. Hear it again in verse 11 of chapter 12 of Exodus. It says, This is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The timing of the crucifixion with the Passover was not random, but it was all part of God's sovereignty. Even Israel's captivity was part of God's plan so that he could show that he was the Lord. When God acted in the Old Testament, that's what it said. I want to do this so that you may know that I am the Lord. And I think what the reason why it happens at the Passover is because the disciples, remember, are hard of hearing. They sometimes don't get it. Are you ever like the disciples? Sometimes you, you, you don't get what the Bible's trying to teach us. They didn't understand why Jesus had to die. They expected the Messiah to come and deliver the, the nation of Israel from Roman oppression. You know, Jesus told them that he was the Messiah. They believed it, but they didn't understand the full ramifications of what that meant. Luke is showing that Jesus is the Passover lamb who had to be sacrificed. John the Baptist proclaimed when he saw Jesus coming forward uh, to be baptized. John said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus takes away the sin of the world through his own blood. As in the Passover, the Lamb had to, to be killed and spread over the doorpost covering the house so when the Lord saw the blood, he would pass over them and not destroy them. The blood was a sign of their salvation. Their salvation came at the expense of another. This is the gospel. We all deserve to be destroyed for our sin. But God sent Jesus to be crushed, to be crucified in our place. See, as their salvation depended upon the Lamb, our salvation depends upon the Lamb of God. It comes at the expense of another. Now, if you're here today and you are not a, a believer in Christ, how do you think about salvation? Do you need salvation? How does salvation come? Through good works? Or only through avoiding the really bad sins? The Bible says that salvation can only come through judgment. Now, we know that our, our conscience bears witness that we are all sinners. We have all done wrong. And God, being just and holy, cannot simply turn a blind eye towards sin. He had to deal with it. In order for God to pass over our sins, yours and mine, someone else's blood had to be shed. Romans chapter 3 summarizes this message Starting in verse 23, God's word writes, says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift of the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as the propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. 
It was to show his righteousness at the present time that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The blood of Jesus, the Passover lamb, was to be shed for the forgiveness of sins. And just as the Israelites wiped the the blood upon the doorpost of their houses to show their trust in God's coming salvation, we too must do the same. We have to wipe the, the, the blood of the doorpost on our own lives to show our trust in this message. We trust God's sovereign plan by repenting, by turning from our sins and trusting in Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior. Friend, if you are here today and you are not a follower of Jesus, the promise of the blood is extended to you, the promise of forgiveness. You can have your life covered. You can have your sins passed over by placing your faith in Jesus. Salvation is in no one else but him. So I just want you to see the backdrop of Jesus' death was the predestined plan of God. Jesus wanted his disciples to trust him as he wants us to trust him. Even in our darkest moments. And we know the disciples are going towards their darkest moment. Their Lord, their master, and their friend was going to be mocked, beaten, and crucified right in front of their eyes. And before that even happens, God steps back and says, trust me. Beloved, you are going to face a storm. You are going to face a darkness. And in that moment, God wants you to trust him. A man just got married and was returning home with his wife. They were crossing a lake in a boat. Then suddenly a great storm arose. The man was a warrior, but the woman became very much afraid because it seemed almost hopeless. The boat was so small and the storm was really huge and any moment they were going to be drowned. And the man sat silently, calm, quiet, as if nothing was happening. The woman was trembling and said, Are you not afraid? This may be the last moment of our life. It doesn't seem that we'll be able to reach the other shore. Only a miracle can save us. Otherwise, death is certain. Are you not afraid? Are you mad? The man laughed, took the sword out of his sheath. The woman was even more puzzled. What was he doing? Then he brought the the naked sword close to the woman's neck, so close that just a small gap was there. It was almost touching her neck. And he said, are you afraid? She started to laugh and said, why should I be afraid? If the sword is in your hands, why should I be afraid? I know you love me. He put his sword back and said, this is my answer. I know God loves me. And the storm is in his hands. So whatever is going to happen, it's going to work for our good. If we survive, good. If we don't survive, good. Because everything is in his hands, he can do no wrong. God's sovereignty should not be left to the theological classroom, but should give us confidence in the midst of the storm. Our God is trustworthy. He will not let anything happen to you that is outside of his control, just like he would not let anything happen to his own son. They faced a darkness, and yet there was a greater good in it, our salvation. 
The second thing we see here is trust in God's sovereign purposes. Trust in God's sovereign purposes. You know, we're not only called to trust God's sovereign plan, but we're also called to trust his purposes. He has established certain rituals for our good and for his glory. You know, we cannot ignore his word as mere suggestions, but trust God by following his ways. Look how Luke continues this scene. And when the hour came, Jesus reclined at the table and the apostles with him. You know, I just think how sweet that time would have been. This is the last meal they're going to share together. This was a sweet, sweet time. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup is, that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And Jesus begins the Passover with a reminder of his, to his disciples that he's about to suffer. But then he redefines how they're going to look at the Passover and observe it for the rest of history until his return. He redefines the symbol of bread and wine for his own body and his own blood. As the bread is broken, so too will his body be broken. And as the wine is poured out, so too will his blood be poured out. So let me make a couple comments about communion, the Lord's Supper, and how the church has historically viewed uh, this ordinance. And let me make some applications for us, how we should observe it today. First, there's been four views of what happens during the Lord's Supper. Four views. The first is called transubstantiation. Transubstantiation. Trans meaning across, substantiation meaning substance across substance. This view is held by Catholics. states that the bread and wine actually becomes the body and the blood of Jesus. They believe the elements maintain their appearance, but the substance changes when the priest consecrates the elements. Some Catholic opponents may view this as a re-sacrifice of Christ, but what it actually is, it kind of views the Lord's Supper as the perpetual sacrifice of Calvary. So when they have uh, their service, they have Mass, when they celebrate communion, they're looking back to the actual event of Calvary. Uh, this view of communion is the continued original sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And they get this from this verse when they said, in a literal translation, this is my body. They, they read that literally. The second view is consubstantiation. Consubstantiation. This view is taken from Lutherans, uh, from Luther, who refers to the idea of the, the real body and the real blood of Christ is mixed with the bread and the wine. It's a modification of the traditional Catholic position, uh, as I just mentioned, attempting to make sense of this dual presence of both bread and body, wine and blood. It's very similar to the position above. The third one is the memorial view. Uh, the, this view is held by most Baptists. They say that the Lord's Supper is done in remembrance of the Lord's sacrifice on the cross. The bread and wine are symbolic of the body and the blood of Christ. The fourth one is the spiritual presence in communion. This view is similar to the memorial view, but it adds the emphasis of Christ's spiritual presence there with God's 
people when the Lord's Supper is administered. The bread and wine represents Christ's body and blood, but, but when it is taken, the presence of Christ is there. Now, all that I, I wrote down so you can have it. It's going to be posted online. The church has disagreed <laughs> over what communion has meant, um, but they have uniformly agreed that it should be taken. That it should be taken by baptized believers who are actively trusting in Christ. Before I, I do the Lord's Supper here at, at Park Baptist Church, I say something along the lines like this. Uh, it, it's, 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 it's traditionally called fencing the table. It's been a historic trish, Christian practice. I say something like this. Many of you have asked me why. I'll explain it. I say, if you are a baptized believer, and if you are a member in good standing of a church of like faith and order, you are welcome at the table. But if you are not, I would ask you to allow the elements to pass by. Now, when I first came here and I said that, a lot of you said, I've never heard that before. Why do you say that? Well, let me explain why we do this. First, churches have practiced three views of fencing the table, is what we're trying to do. Closed, close, and open communion. Closed, close, and open communion. Closed communion is where communion is only offered to those in the church, only offered to members of that particular church congregation. Close communion is offered to all Christians present who understand communion like the practicing church. So if they believe in um, the memorial or the spiritual presence of Christ view that it should be administered to a, a baptized believer who is a good member of good standing of a church. Open communion is offered to all Christians present. Open communion is offered to all Christians present. So my personal view is I hold to close communion, meaning I invite all baptized believers who are members of good standing of a local church of like faith and order to participate in the supper. That's really my doctrine of church membership and my doctrine of the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. If you want to know more about that, I'd be happy to talk with you. Because I believe Jesus Christ instituted the Lord's Supper so that his people could remember his death, burial, and resurrection and to proclaim his coming again. The Lord's Supper is for Christians because participating in the Lord's Supper is an act of faith. We are feeding and drinking by faith. It's a physical act to trust the Passover lamb that was slain. Just like the Israelites' physical act to take the blood and wipe it over the doorpost. We demonstrate that we are covered by the body and the blood of Christ when we take the Lord's Supper. So practically, the Lord's Supper is how we demonstrate our trust in God's sovereign purpose. He has given us communion for a very specific reason. It's a sign that people are in the faith or they're continuing in the faith. faith. People should be baptized before they take the Lord's Supper because this is the entrance into the Christian faith. When you see someone giving their life to Jesus in the New Testament, what do they do? They believe and they are baptized. So if someone's not baptized upon the profession of faith, they haven't obeyed God's first command. Many churches, let me say this, people should be members of good standing of the church 
before they take the Lord's Supper because it's a sign you are in the faith. When I say a member of good standing, I mean an active member of a Christian church. Just someone who goes to church who has submitted to their leadership. Because the Bible has no category for a Christian who is not connected to a local church. Find me one. The Bible does not have a category for it. That's, that's a hard concept. We, we talked a lot about it in Sunday school. We can talk more about it later. It's always been the job of the pastor to fence the table. Now, people question, why are you doing that? It seems unloving, but it is my job under God to protect the table and to protect you. Listen to what Paul writes to the Corinthians. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty, will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, so eat of the bread and the drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill and have some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. So we have to trust the sovereign purposes of the Lord and how we practice the Lord's Supper. Jesus commanded his disciples, do this in remembrance of me. The Lord's Supper is not optional for the Christian. And yet many self-professing Christians have no concern for the Lord's Supper because they do not make it a practice to participate in the Lord's Supper with a local church. Should they have confidence in their salvation? Should we have confidence in their salvation? I don't think so. Now, I'm not referring to people who are physically unable to come. I'm not referring to people who are, who are looking for a church and desire to submit to a local church. I'm talking about those people who call themselves Christians but do not have any desire to participate in the Lord's Supper. Jesus says, do this. And if you are not going to do what the Lord says to do, why do you call him Lord? Jesus says that in, in Luke 6. Why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? By not attending the Lord's Supper, people are directly disobeying Jesus, not disobeying the church. This is the Lord's command. They are in sin and must be called to repentance. Avoiding the Lord's Supper is disobeying Jesus Christ. Can I make it any clearer than that? I'm not going to, because you can't, right? Diso not taking the Lord's Supper is disobedience to the Lord Christ. And historically, the Lord's Supper has been used as, as church discipline. You know, the historic church has been defined three ways. Where the word is rightly preached, the sacraments are rightly administered, and church discipline is rightly practiced. That's how they define a church historically. Well, I pray that here you hear the word of God rightly preached every single week. I want the Bible to speak, not me. We, we want the, the word of God to lay upon our hearts. We want to practice the ordinance rightly, meaning that we want to practice the Lord's Supper and we want to practice baptism. But it also means we should practice church discipline, which we don't really do. You know, discipline is God's way to legitimize his adopted children, Hebrews 12. If people are living in unrepentant sin, the church protects their soul by keeping them from the table. 
showing they are in spiritual danger. Remember that Jesus here was, was sharing a meal with his disciples in the shadow of the cross. He was to be crucified the very next day. He was going to bear the full weight of the wrath of God on the cross for sinners. His body was going to be broken. His blood was going to be spilled. In light of that, he says, do this in remembrance of me. When we diminish the importance of the Lord's Supper, we diminish the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Beloved, Jesus bore our sins in his body on a tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. One way we live unto righteousness is by trusting in God's sovereign purpose in the ordinances like the Lord's Supper. Jesus wants to encourage our faith and remind us of his sacrificial death and promised return. Beloved, it is such a precious gift. And it was given for our good, for the good of the church, and for the glory of God. What we have to do is to trust the God who gave us the command that it was for our good and rejoice in it and practice it the way he has meant for it to be practiced. Do this in remembrance of me. I pray as a church family that we would do the Lord's Supper the right way, that we would care, we would not diminish it, but we would hold fast to God's sovereign purpose in, in why he gave it to us. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, uh, that we think about the Lord's Supper, Father, uh, that we think about the sacrifice of Christ, uh, that we would rejoice in what you have done for us. God, I, I pray that we would uh, trust your sovereign plan in our life, God, when we face darkness, and that we would trust your sovereign purposes that you have given uh, to build up and strengthen your, your church. We pray that you would do this for our good and for your glory's sake. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.